Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it gives me so much joy to introduce our next guest, Wayne Hoover. Wayne is a senior partner at Wicklander Zolowski & Associates, the premier non-confrontational interview and interrogation training and advisory firm. He was instrumental in the creation of the Certified Forensic Interviewer designation and the establishing of the International Association of Interviewers. He has trained tens of thousands of investigators around the world in the public and private sector. He's conducted countless interviews and interrogations across the public and private sector. And personally, he is not only a friend, but a mentor and somebody who is instrumental in my development as an investigator, as an interrogator, and as an instructor. And today, I am so happy to be able to have him on the show and share not only his interview and interrogation experience and how he believes himself and our team was so successful getting the truth in a wide variety of interrogations, but also how these same skills and perspectives apply to his experience coaching youth sports and honestly, how a lot of his experiences in youth sports shaped him as an instructor and as an investigator. Also, how the same principles tie into much of the volunteer work that he does in his community as well. So this really is going to be a great illustration on how many of these skills, techniques, and perspectives apply really in all of our high-impact conversations across our life. So I'm really, really excited to have Wayne, and I'm thankful he shared his time. Before we get started, of course, we want to thank our sponsors, HumanTel. If you are interested at all in learning how to read people's changing emotions through their facial expressions and nonverbal communication, please head over to humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off the best-in-class self-paced training on their website. I highly recommend it. I've done it all myself. That's humantel.com. The code's INQUASIVE25 for the best-in-class online training to how to accurately identify somebody's shifting emotions through their facial expressions and nonverbal communication. Please also check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com. Head over there for their continuously expanding library of blogs, articles, books, interviews, podcasts, training programs, cohorts, and more. Everything you would want to know about emotional intelligence. And of course, especially if you came here today to listen to Wayne, listen to myself or both, please check out the International Association of Interviewers if you are a professional investigator. Dive into the association to learn more about our training events, our elite training days, the online training that's available, the networking opportunities, the legal updates, the investigative resources, and of course, explore to see if the Certified Forensic Interviewer designation is best for you and your organization at this point in time. Thank you all so much for continuing to take the time to join us and be here today. We really appreciate it. So without further ado, I introduce to you Wayne Hoover. Wayne Hoover. It is about time we've had this conversation, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Ah, my pleasure, Mike. It has been way too long. I've got to get myself out to the Midwest one of these days, or I have to coerce you into coming out with coming back out to Charlotte. I know someone who comes out to Charlotte from time to time, so maybe I can trick you into coming on one of those trips. But it is fantastic to see you again, and I really sincerely appreciate you taking the time. Well, I appreciate you having me. So for the people that don't know you, if you don't mind, just take a couple of minutes and walk us through your journey to how you became one of the most respected voices in the field of interview and interrogation. Uh, in all honesty, I always like to define it as right place, right time. And uh, 
not being afraid to ask, right? So I got hired 32 years ago, um, last month at WZ and straight out of college, doing a job interview for a position. And they said it didn't work. And the lady interviewing me said that she was resigning that day. And I just made the comment, well, who's taking your spot? And she said, no one, they don't even know I'm resigning. And next thing you know, uh, I took that spot and I was hired as a uh, undercover coordinator. So I was managing undercovers at WZ with Leonard Zalowski. And then same thing, we hired uh, Shane, my partner, um, to be an instructor. And after a couple of weeks, I'm like, I can do that. I know you can't. And here I am teaching, you know, 29 years later, still being an instructor. So, uh, and then within that career, I've also uh, had some outside stuff. So I've been able to be police commissioner in North Rural Illinois for a number of years where I was in charge of uh, hiring, firing, and discipline of law enforcement officers. And uh, that obviously helped me with my job. I like to call it HR for uh, law enforcement, right? And then um, I want to say around 2001, 2002, I was kind of assigned to the International Association of Interviewers, which was the CFI designation, Certified Forensic Interviewer designation. Uh, we created that exam, and then uh, I've been managing that for the last 20 years until I passed it off recently to a gentleman in our office, Tony, as the executive director. I'm the chairman of that. Um, and then just a whole bunch of things in between. Anything that a small business needs, we kind of do it. So I appreciate you sharing. I'm biting my tongue because after having an office next to yours for the better part of 10 years, there's some missing pieces from that story, of course. And maybe we'll get to a few of those. Yeah. Um, but you know, to make sure we get this recorded, not only are you a great friend, but you've been a mentor and somebody who has played a significant role, as significant a role in my life and development as really anybody else. And I'm grateful for that. And for today, hoping to share a little bit with the folks listening that you shared with me over the years. Well, and I think, Mike, that that um, says something because I also consider you a mentor as well and uh getting to know you over the years i've always considered your little brother and in fact i'm going to pull something out that you may not remember but i i still have that so teach like a rock star you gave that to me after you went and did your first seminar <laughs> and you came back it was on your hotel signage or whatever and i don't know if you remember giving that to me or not but um i still keep it and it's still a reminder and that was from you so thank you for that. And I also consider you a mentor, as I said. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Yeah. So before I get all weepy, let's get into the conversation. <laughs> um, the first time I met you, well, the first time we really had a conversation was about coaching flag football. And I haven't forgotten that. And we're going to bring that back in later in the conversation. But the first time you and I really began to interact was when I was studying for the certified forensic interviewer designation. And then that led to us eventually working together. So what I would love to do is kind of go back to the CFI designation just for a moment. Even today, when I'll go teach, I'll get introduced as a certified forensic interviewer and almost 90 plus percent of the time, the first question I get is, Mike, what is a certified forensic interviewer? So I don't know if this is a Wayne Hoover approved answer or not, but essentially what I say is somebody, a certified forensic interviewer should be able to be blindfolded, rolled off the back of a truck, take their blindfold off and conduct a morally, legally and ethically successful investigative interview, whatever they landed in the middle of. So for you, what does it mean to conduct morally, 
ethically and legally successful interviews? Well, I, I think it really comes down to those three words. I mean, it, those three words legally, that's that's obvious, right? So, uh, or is it? You know, we've, we've gone through definitions of what's legal and what's not legal, uh, but it's also got to be effective, right? So uh, morally and ethically is the way that I'm driven is I want to make sure that um, I'm treating the people with dignity and respect. Those aren't just words. Those are those are a uh, a thought process. It's always in the back of my mind. I would much rather um, have a conversation with somebody that I'm not quite sure on. I've walked out of interviews and said, "Listen, I I might be able to get to this person to admit, but that doesn't mean I think they did it." And th- and all you got to do is turn on any Netflix show because they're all over the place with the false confessions and things of that nature. I don't want that. And I don't want someone to experience that. So to me, uh, a certified forensic interviewer is somebody who uh, is able to put it forward and say, look, I know the right way to do it. And I'm telling you, I'm going to follow these code of ethics and these standards of practice to make sure that I'm doing everything the right way to those words, legally, ethically, and morally allowed. And that's really what a CFI means to me. and, And I think that that's hit home in the designation as well. I certainly think so, especially as time has passed and we've watched new generations of interviewers cycle through. I would I would say so, certainly. And when we, we talk about doing that ethically, yeah, it starts with respecting people's rights, of course. I mean, we're not doing anything that's illegal, but it goes beyond that in respecting people as human beings. One mm-hmm. of the things we like to talk about is the universality of the human experience. Like, mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a human being in an uncomfortable conversation being asked either to talk about something that happened to you, you're a victim, you're a witness, whatever that may be, or a regrettable decision that you made that now we have to bring back to light. And just like you said, being respectful of the emotions that they experience, allowing them to preserve their dignity, safe face, all of those things, not using coercive techniques. You know, we could go on and on, but -hmm. that really is super important. Looking back at your vast experience in interview and interrogation, why do you believe people choose to tell the truth so frequently in these conversations? You know, I, I do think it has a lot to do with being authentic and, and the report piece, right? Um, and it, there's a quote I'm, I'm going to give you that really means something to me. And I read it a couple of years ago by a, a guy that I went to high school with. He wrote a book. And it said, um, and just to make sure I get it right, I'm going to look, all right? Or because it's up on my board, right? So it says, when emotions dominate your mind, you almost always lose. And it was a fictional book, and he was a military leader, and it just hit home to me. If if we let emotion get involved, think about how many times we've gotten a disagreement at home or, or said something somewhere, and we had emotion involved it just sidetracks the whole conversation and then you have regrets and you have all these other things that are going on. When, when I look at being authentic and building rapport, I think of, of everybody has made bad decisions in life. And you've heard me joke in the past, you know, how many of us should have died in high school, right? We've made some bad decisions. You probably more than most, but you know, when you think of that situation, it's, We've all been there. We've all had an unexpected bill. We've all had the pressure of even as a managing an organization, right? You want to make sure your employees are good. You you lose sleep over that. You want to make sure that you're doing right by the by the your employees, by the people you're talking to. And that 
it, it, that comes across, you know, if, if you're able to be authentic, if that's who you really are, that's hard to fake. It is. And you know, we've got what well, you have videos upon videos of rapport building in progress. And it can be really tempting to fake something to try to get someone to like you. Mm-hmm. But A, it comes off as fake most of the time. And B, even if it doesn't, the statistical likelihood of that getting unraveled at an inconvenient time in this conversation is pretty large. And I remember when we used to uh, critique videos that people would send to us, either audio recordings or video recordings. One of the things that would send us into each other's office coming completely off the rails was somebody building rapport, obviously lying about themselves to try to get somebody else to like them. I don't know why you thought that was a good idea. Just be yourself. Good, bad, or indifferent. At least if you're you, you've got to get a better chance of another human being respecting that. And you can you can find similarities. It's that, it truly is that similarity principle, right? You can find similarities. If if I ask somebody, what sports do you like? And they say soccer. I'm going to be like, any others? <laughs> right? I mean, I've got baseballs behind me, right? I mean, you got any others? Okay, how about books? All right. How about a TV show? How about a movie? Right. You can find similarities with anybody that you're talking to. And by the, Dave Thompson in our office wrote a, a great um, article this uh, recently in Loss Prevention Magazine. It was called uh, Are We the Liars? Right. And it was it was being authentic in your report building. And it was all about the report building piece. And, you know, we have seen a 25 year old say they've got six kids because they were trying to develop rapport because the person had six kids. No, you don't. All right. No, you don't. And it becomes blatantly obvious that you don't. But you can still have that rapport and that similarity by saying, well, I am an uncle if I have no kids. And some uncles are very involved in those, uh, their nephews or nieces at lives. So you can find the similarities. It's just when you try to stress something that you're not, it, it, you're going to slip up in a conversation and it's going to come up. And why feel like that? There's no doubt. And why make the other person feel like that? Right. And when you talk about uncle versus six kids, it can be really easy for somebody to say, oh, this person is a parent of multiple children. They will like me more if I'm a parent of multiple children. No, drill down deeper. Mm -hmm. This person has six kids. They are somebody who understands what it's like to be responsible for, to care for, to deal with, to love, blah, blah, blah. Kids. Okay, find something in your background that relates to that. Well, it's pretty simple, right? I don't care if you've got one or six kids are expensive little boogers, right? <laughs> so they're going to cost you a lot of money. So, and they're going to do stupid things. So whether it be one or six or a niece or a nephew, you've, you've had those conversations with your brother or sister. If, if you're the uncle or, or what, or aunt, you can find the similarities. It's just, you're right. Drill down. And I think is something that, um, the lazy conversationalists do. Yeah, I find found it in interviewers. I find it in sales professionals. I find it in negotiators. I find it in people who conduct candidate interviews. That lazy surface level, give me the top line, let me acknowledge or pretend to be or try to hit on that instead of drilling two or three levels underneath and asking what's the actual experience involved in that top line data point and now let me connect with that top with the with that experience underneath. It's a huge Absolutely. difference. Yes. Yes. And you hit on something else too, when you were talking about people who made decisions based on what they were experiencing at that time, you and I have both interviewed a handful of 
bad people that were going to make bad decisions in any circumstance. Mm-hmm. But I bet you and I likely feel the same that north of 90% of the people we ever interviewed were basically good people that made a series of regrettable choices in their mind based on the circumstances they were experiencing. And if you change the circumstances, they change their decision, which doesn't absolve them of accountability or responsibility. It's just a pragmatic and empathetic way to look at it. I had a call today where a guy calls in, he works in M&A, and they're looking at potentially buying a company, but the CEO of this company made some really bad decisions over 10 years ago. And the question he made to me is, what are the odds that this guy would do that again? Like, how likely is it that he would do that again? And I followed up. I was like, man, you're asking the wrong question. I don't know this guy. I don't know anything about what happened. But the question I think we really need to ask is what are the odds he's going to find himself in a situation that allows him to justify that behavior again? Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. the question that we need to ask. And you know in more details than me, if you think that's pretty unlikely, it's probably pretty unlikely. But if you think it's reasonable to assume that he could find himself in those circumstances, I'm not telling you he's going to do it again. Maybe he saw the light and changed his ways. But if the circumstances allow him to justify his decision, he's probably going to reoffend. Well, absolutely. I mean, all you got to do today's paper, right? You got Van Sloot, who uh, the Holloway disappearance, right? His his conversation, he was four years in between killing two different women, right? And admittedly so, he's he's convicted of it. It's He was put in a similar circumstance four years later. Nothing happened in those four years that was similar. I'm sure he did some other things potentially, but who knows? But once he was put in that situation again, he made the exact same decision. We're creatures of habit. Yes, people can change. I, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. That's why I, I coach. That's why I teach. People can change. But it's an effort. And if you can't uh, go back to those stressful moments and say, all right, next time this happens, this is how I'm going to handle it and then prove that you can do it, then that's always going to be a concern until you figure it out. For sure. Along the lines of rapport and authenticity, I believe we're also both passionate about the topic of saving face. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to from your experience on the power of allowing people to save face? As the, I'm not asking this question the right way. How, how powerful it is to help people save face in order to share sensitive information or change their behavior? You know, I, I think it's so important. And I go back to the quote I started with. And if I may, I'm going to use my kids as an example real quick. Uh, so I do have four kids and I let emotion get involved in a situation when my oldest son uh, was in his teenage years and he borrowed my laptop. And when he borrowed my laptop, he's sleeping in the next morning. I go on my laptop and there's been some sites he's visited that he shouldn't have visited. And emotion took over for me. Now, there's two kids in the home at the point at that point that are teenagers that would have done this. It's my daughter who's older than him or him. I pull him into the room and I go, which one of you did this? You're in trouble. And everything I ever train or anything was out the window. No one confessed. Amazingly, no one admitted to the truth. And then I sat back after I talked to him. I'm frustrated. And then I realized I didn't let anybody save face. So I pulled each of them aside. I then started to be authentic and develop that rapport as well as showing empathy in the conversation. So they had that opportunity to save face. And my son eventually 
was like, I'm sorry, dad. Right. And so it's so important to just say, and this is errors I made early in my interviews. If you go back, I don't know if you ever watched my first interview I ever did or not, but, um, and my second one, I never gave empathy. It was all about credibility. And I own you in a conversation. I had, uh, I own you from the evidence. And the first one didn't say a word, never admitted. And then my boss came in, took over, showed empathy, got an admission. My second one went different. It was a gang member on the, on the West side of Chicago yelling and screaming at me. And I walked out, Doug Wicklander, right? Name on the door, WZ. He goes in, shows empathy. The person admits within 10 minutes, right? And I asked the person, and I'll clean it up a little bit for the podcast. um, He sent me back in to get the written statement of of their involvement. And the whole time I'm sitting there just doing this because I'm mad. You know, I'm like five years older than this person. Why they admit to the old guy and not me? And afterwards, they got done. They hand me the written statement. I got a question. I need to know the answer to this. Why did you admit to him and not me? And the person looked at me and goes, are you sure you want that answer? And I said, I do. I want that answer. And like I said, I'll clean it up. They called me a jerk, basically. And they used different words. But they said, you're a jerk. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And then I went back and watched the video. And all I did was spend it about Ionia. At no point did I give them that opportunity to save face by by providing empathy to them with understanding of making decisions that maybe afterwards we look back and say, oh, the wrong decision. I never did it. And that was a that's on me. And after I realized that, that's when my career took off as an interviewer anyway. And I'm thankful that you had that experience because I learned from you in so many ways. So you were you were able to pass that knowledge down. It is a little bit personally ironic to hear somebody call you a jerk because you might be the nicest person I've ever met in my entire life. Um, But it's all too often an investigative interview, a negotiation, a business development conversation, even like a performance management conversation can feel like a competition. Yes. I need to win. Yes. In, In my personal belief, I don't know where the research lies on this or not. I feel like a lot of times that's what ends up contributing to false confessions. Mm-hmm. That's what ends up contributing to guilty people not confessing or victims not telling the truth and all of these unsatisfactory outcomes. Because at some point, I'll put it on me, I just decide I can't lose to this guy. I can't walk out of here and say yeah. I didn't get it. And so now that competition takes over, that need for dominance and control picks up. And all I'm doing is like a reverse magnet. I'm pushing you further away because if you don't say anything, I lose. If you don't say anything, you win. So it's not like you have to tell me a story. It's not like you have to convince me. It's not like you have to do anything other than nothing. Right. And I'm pushing you into that. And I wish more and more interviewers could see how that bull approach of just trying to own a conversation and take over somebody is futile. Well, and stop looking at it like an interrogation, which is the definition of the word, right? Stop looking at it and look at it more like a negotiation. Who wins in a negotiation? Well, a good negotiation, personal opinion, you may disagree, but is when both sides feel like they've been represented. Uh, Yes, lost a little bit, gained a little bit. And if I'm doing that as an interviewer as well, Maybe I didn't get everything that they were involved in, but I got a lot. And they're going, man, I admitted more than I wanted to, but I didn't admit everything, right? So it's it's that negotiation. It's uh, um, there was a a meeting I had with a guy, 
and he was a young guy. He was 25. And I was on a, uh, I was about to be a chairman of, of a board. And he asked me for a lunch because he was coming in as the rep to represent the organization as a whole, right? So he was working for the organization. I'm a volunteer, but I'm going to be the chairman of, of this volunteer organization. And he goes, Wayne, I, I asked around about you. And he goes, I, I found out two things. Uh, he goes, number one, everybody's told me you're really nice. And I said, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Tell whoever said that. Thank you. And then he gave me a look like this. Just sitting across the table from me, I go, what's with the look? And he goes, I'm trying to figure out how the second thing I found out about you um, applies with the first one. I was like, well, what, what was the second thing? And he goes, I also found out you get things done. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, I don't understand how you can be nice and get things done. Now, you have to understand where I was volunteering was a military high school, right? So we're used to, you give orders, people follow them, right? And we're both graduates of that high school. So he was like, I don't see how they go. I go, ah, I get it. You've equated nice with being weak. I go, nice does not mean you're weak. It means you're strategic, right? So you get a lot more information if they like you than if they dislike you. And that's kind of been my mantra is it's strategic in nature of what you're doing and being authentic still, right? You find the similarity pieces. So it's not, it's not fake nice, but it's, I'm doing what I need to get you to, to tell me what I need, whatever it is, whether it be in sales, whether it be in coaching, whether it be in business, whether it be in an interview. And that adaptability is so important. And it's mm -hmm. not even just if they like you. It's I'm not pushing them. I'm not threatening them. I'm not pushing their buttons. I'm not incentivizing their resistance. Right. And you said it. You said it, Mike. You said most of the people we talk to are good, decent people who just made a dumb decision. We've all been there. Yep. Right. And so it's getting them past that point. So I'm going to bring something up that you probably remember saying. I'm not sure if you remember saying it to me because you've said it many, many, many times. At least you used to way back in the day. Um, but when we were talking about you and I were on the road together real early on in my tenure. And somebody was talking to us about like our background and what did we study and what did we do in order to prepare to become professional interviewers. You did have a bit of a criminal justice bent when you were young. I didn't. I always studied to be a teacher and then business and then tripped and fell and landed in this thing by accident. But do you remember what you told them the most important college class you ever took was that helped you in your interviewing career? Yeah. To, to give you the full version, it, it was, uh, I got a criminal justice degree. I'm in the criminal justice world and nothing I studied in criminal justice uh, is applicable to anything that I'm doing uh, from a conversationalist. Anyway, the w number one class I used was, general studies they made you take these classes to become a well-rounded student and it was theater because when i'm doing an interview i need to act like i care about this person um and which by the way is i'm talking out of both sides of my mouth being authentic but i can find some similarities that i like about them and so it still is authentic from that standpoint but i i'm not gonna go ask them for a beer afterwards no don't get me wrong i've interviewed some people i'm like this guy would be fun to hang out with, you know, other than that whole criminal thing. But uh, you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's it's being authentic, but it's also it, there is a little bit of acting. Um, when you're having a conversation with somebody, again, on any spectrum, there's if, if I if I'm coaching a baseball kid that I don't like. 
well, he's not going to do anything I want if, if he knows I don't like him. So he can't know that. So, hey, man, how was your weekend? I'm going to constantly be building that rapport with him uh, to try and find areas that I can, I can uh, at least correlate to. Yeah. And I honestly don't think you are talking out of both sides of your mouth, because I would imagine coming from a guy that's never taken a moment of theater in his life, that in theater, you're learning how to control your emotions. You're learning how to display different behaviors. You're learning how, who you need to be honestly under a bit of pressure in a moment to convey a certain experience to somebody else. And yeah. in interviewing, I believe I talked to somebody else who's a CFI recently who's really, really smart and successful and might have said something similar. She might even share your last name, if, if I yeah. recall correctly. But she yeah. talked about the importance of being who the other person needs you to be. And yes. that isn't, in, in my opinion, that's not inauthentic. You can still be very authentic and find something about that person or that background and be empathetic to their circumstances in order to make that connection with them. And I honestly feel like an understanding, even just a foundational understanding of acting would set you up to excel at that. Yeah. If, uh, so if I could address that in a couple of ways, one, if you could tell that person to make sure that they include that mentality with their husband, that would be awesome. I'll say that to um, them. So if you'd share that with her, but, you know, and she said, she's an honest person, uh, almost to a fault. Right. So, uh, you know, she, I think in, uh, her interview with you, she mentioned that she was known as intense, um, but also honest and, and it's almost honest to a, a fault, but when she's doing an interview, man, I, she's, I think you asked her who's a better interviewer. I'll tell you it was her. And she had the ability to, sometimes you need a parent mentality of, and not the punishing parent, but the understanding parent, the listening parent, the non-judgmental parent. Sometimes you need a best friend or you need a, just a friend. Think about how many times you have shared personal information with someone you just met that you're like, man, I haven't told that to my significant other. Or I haven't told that to my best friend, but there was just a connection with this person. Like, Hey, I think they're going to like get it. They're going to, they're not going to judge me. They're going to listen and understand that empathy. Right. That's what it all comes back down to. It does. And for people that are like, wait a minute, who are you talking about? If you listen to the show, I interviewed Stephanie Hoover earlier, Wayne Hoover, husband, wife, interview and interrogation, super couple. So now we've we've blown the lid. Off episode of 20. Make sure you check out episode 20. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the cross promotion. <laughs> You're well. um, but so right. The, the saving face, the empathy, the rapport. Time and time again, I can't say it enough. You'll be surprised what people then say and do for you when you're nice to them and you treat them with respect. When you try yes. to bully them through the conversation, it's just not going to work. So for people listening, to stay true to our relationship, we didn't do a whole lot of preparation. What are we going to talk about? What are we going to do before this conversation? So no. I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here. And it's probably a question you do get asked a lot. I know I get asked it a lot. When you think back to the interview and interrogations that you've done, mm -hmm. can you come back to one where showing empathy and understanding either was more difficult than you anticipated or led to a, a surprising result for you? Yeah, I um, did a uh, law enforcement interview. It was out in uh, Nebraska and it was a, uh, a child molestation. Uh, grandfather, 86 years old, had molested a uh, five-year-old granddaughter. And they had sent me the video of the interview of the child. 
and it was 45 minutes long. And I'm telling you, Mike, uh, you might have been in the office when I watched. I, I watched five minutes and I went, all right, I get it. This five-year-old saying stuff that no five-year-old should be saying or know about even. And I stopped it. And I remember getting to the department out in Nebraska and they said, um, did you watch the video? And I said, I watched five minutes. Oh, you got to watch the whole thing. I go, I can't. If I watch the video, I'm going to go into the room and have issues. I already have issues with one because of what the crime is. I have my own personal beliefs on that. And I go, and number two, I know it's him. So therefore, I, I've got to I've got to let that go because who's going to tell me that deep, dark secret, right? I mean, how many times you watch on TV, somebody saying, uh, hey, do you know what happens to child molesters in prison? Well, anybody that knows the answer to that, why why would you go to an interview and do that? You know what? Yeah, I'd like that to happen to me. I should confess now, right? They're not going to do that. So you've got you've got to show that empathy and that understanding in the room. Whether you like it or not, I got a job to do. And my job is is to get them to tell the truth of their involvement in that or non-involvement in that. It's okay if they're not involved. That's okay. But that conversation uh, was me walking in. Then once I got in the room, he immediately challenged me on the video recording. And it took a good 15, 20 minutes. And just like you, and I've seen you in an interview, I remember in Tennessee that you did, where the person didn't want to write down their involvement in a sexual harassment case. And I love that video because I say Mike Reddington is a bulldog, right? And he's not in a bad way. He was very respectful, but he let the person know, I have a belief system that this needs to occur and we're going to talk it through. But without any pressure, without any, you, just, you didn't give up, if that makes sense. So there's your competition thing, but it wasn't, it wasn't done. Like to me, it's a training tool. I mean, it, it truly is you just saying, well, here's some options. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, that's your choice. And then you you went through some other options and then I don't want to do it. Ah, that's your choice. And then you went through some other options until he finally sat down. And it was it was that same concept with that guy that I was shocked he actually ended up talking to me, if that makes sense. So I tied in a few examples there. Sorry. I appreciate it. And they are great examples. And mm -hmm. I think when people hear examples of those types of interviews, which mm -hmm. thankfully we didn't have to do a lot. We have friends right. that that was their line of work and man, mm -hmm. I would have made a lot of bartenders rich if I had to do those interviews full time. But right. when we talk about those examples, people are like, well, how do you empathize with that person? How do I not? I don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Maybe you watch CSI on TV and you think that they're going to have the DNA evidence in 15 minutes and this guy's going to go to jail. Like, my job is to get the truth documented so so this guy can get whatever quote unquote justice is coming his way. So if I don't do the best I can to get the truth, then some sort of outcome that we all want is never going to happen. So I literally have to be empathetic with him in order to be successful and do my job. Right. And and I've had discussions with other instructors, Brett Wood uh, in our office, right? He He'd always told me, uh, Wayne shouldn't do child molestation interviews because he's got four kids. I know how he feels about that crime. And I'm like, I've got a different mentality. And my mentality is in the back of my head is, again, provided I've got the good information of this guy's involvement, and everything else to get to the truth, because I don't want him to be able to touch my kid tomorrow. Yeah. So that's a hell of a motivator, right? In a conversation, but still keeping it respectful because 
the the problem that most conversationalists, most interviewers especially have is what your point was. Well, how can you show empathy for that? It's understanding what could get them there. Like you said, digging three or four levels deep. I've had molesters we've seen admit because they had financial problems at home. And if you say that, I've done it as an instructor in a room full of police. I mean, can financial be a reason for child molestation? No. Well, think about it. If you don't have a good financial situation and your significant other are dis in a disagreement about it, there's certain things that probably aren't going on and that can lead to that mentality. And it's not what your belief is, it's what their belief is. And that goes to what my wife said earlier, Steph said earlier was, you know, what do they need? And that's our job. It is. Mm -hmm. I'd love to transition to another part of your job. Because not only are you one of the first handful of mentors I had in interview and interrogation, you are one of the first handful of mentors I had in teaching and public speaking and education. And I remember many trips with you to random parts all over this country with you watching me speak and then giving me feedback and implementing that as we go and, and me watching you and trying to implement, or I'm sorry, not implement, trying to copy you. I lost the word I wanted to say. Imitate. There it is. There Try it is. to imitate you in a way that was authentic to me. So it wasn't like right. I was tripping all over myself. Um, but when we think about, to me, when I think about teaching and interrogation, there's a lot of similarities there. I need to communicate with somebody in a way to give them the experience of what they need to feel to internalize this message to turn around and take action on it. Now, if mm -hmm. I'm interviewing you, I'm sitting four feet away. This is one-on-one. -on -one. If you and I are teaching the seminar, we're on stage in front of 50, 100,000, whatever people, and it's it's, it's different. Um, but when you think about resonating with an audience, what are some authentic tools that you like to do in order to help resonate and look to you? I definitely can't speak English. What are some authentic tools you like to use in order to resonate in, uh, with an audience and help your most important points get implemented? You know, I have to say that um, a couple things come to mind. Number one is, again, the strategy, right? As an instructor, it wasn't just get up and do. I'm, I'm a big believer of uh, you play the way you practice. And practicing was something that I've always been involved in. Uh, I believe in it. You know, like I said, I coach. So I'm, I'm, that's a very important part for me. But what I found when I get in front of a room is the eye contact, the, um, the, even the facial expressions uh, that they're giving and I can mimic and mirror, um, you know, this being a little bit of smart act, which I know you and I both are, right? So that made it easy for you to, to replicate. It, I didn't have to that mimic that. No, no, you, you have no problem with that part. And it was, it was truly just showing genuine listening skills and visual skills of they like this, they don't like that. All right. So if they don't like that and that's important, how can I win that over? Do I need to say it a different way? And it's it's just paying attention. You, how many? I mean, you've been to some bad presentations before, right? And they're just standing up there at the podium, blah 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 blah. So voice inflection, tone, and using people's names and just listening what they're saying and. Uh, that, that's all going to be so important as an instructor, as a teacher, as a coach, as a negotiator, as an interviewer. It's just a skill that you're you're constantly honing 
Um, and I still, I struggle going to conferences and listening to instructors where I'm listening to their content. I'm listening to how they present their content. Content. What can I take to be blunt? You know, what can I, what can I use to really hit something home? And it, it's gotten more important as I've gotten older because I'm not as hip on TikTok and I'm not as hip on this, you know, some of the terminology and, and stuff. Luckily, having four kids, it keeps me kind of in touch with some of it. So I've had to find a way to get in touch with the younger generation. And I found it truly is just listening. And uh, the eye contact really plays a big part for me anyway. I think so, because people feel like they're getting that one-on-one -on -one experience, even in a larger group. Mm -hmm. um, I laugh that I have zero minutes of formal public speaking training, yeah. which is 90% true, because I think you and I went to Hoffman Estates once to pop in on a conference, and there was somebody on stage talking about public speaking, and it was like right before lunch. So we saw like 15 minutes of that, so I should probably change when I say I have zero minutes. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, there was one thing that you and I took from that when we were talking about it in the truck on the way back, we each took the same thing from that session. And I'm probably not going to say it right, but it was yeah. like one thought, one person. Yeah. And I still remember that to this day. So when I'm looking around the room, I look at Wayne for one thought. I look at the next person for one thought. I go to the back of the room for one thought. And I'm trying yeah. not to bounce corner to corner to corner to corner because it just looks crazy. But it's one person, one thought. And that one thing that I was sitting next to you when I heard it, and that had to be north of 15 years ago, still uh, sticks with me today. It's, it's a very good point. And you're right. I never took a public speaking class, as I tell people. That's why I spit all over and I leave the front row empty. Uh, because <laughs> I never took a communication class. I never did any of that. It's just, it, it comes back, I think, for both of us. I, I love the one person, one thought. And I do remember that. What, what I like, we talked earlier about authenticity and, and rapport, it's, it's also passion. And passion is, is not fake. When you have it, you have it. And, and believing in what you're saying, you know, I believe in our methodology. I believe in these kids when I'm coaching. I believe in anything I volunteer my time with. I, I believe in my company. I, I believe in my people. So the, it, it comes out. And how can that not be contagious? You, you mentioned something earlier. I, I tell you, as an instructor, I think there's a, a there's a piece where you could define us as motivational speakers, right? I mean, we've got a concept and it works, right? Our discipline listening, this is the way this works. Our WZ method, this is the way this works. But without that passion, it it doesn't. It, it could fall flat with the wrong person, right? It could fall flat. So when I get people that have had tons of experience, they've been through my class 15 times, you know, they're sick of my jokes. They're sick of all this. I can still make that connection because they see, look at this guy. He's been here 32 years and he still loves it. How can that not be contagious? I agree that the passion certainly speaks. It keeps people involved. And I, I had to be coached on this at different points. It can be a little bit overbearing sometimes. <laughs> sometimes I got to reel it in. We've only gotten that feedback. <laughs> but it definitely sells. And I think, you know, taking things, looking back on watching you from the back of the room and not just taking notes on what you were teaching, because I could study that, but taking notes on how you were teaching, what was worth emulating, what I could use, what I thought maybe my personality could do a little bit different. 
Um, but the way that you, and in fairness to any of the WZ guys that are listening, I know we all do it. I just saw you do it first and do it well. Um, but the way that you immediately jumped in and said, well, let's do that. So if somebody raised their hand and says, well, what if somebody says this? What if somebody does that? Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And like 10% of the time, it's a reasonable what if. <laughs> right. But in, immediately putting yourself in that position with no prep, no practice, just literally relying on your expertise, your experience, the techniques that you know to be true. And even if there wasn't like a specific, I know to say these exact words in that exact moment, conceptually speaking, your techniques and experience would lead you to the right alternative to handle that situation. And being able to do that on the fly was something that I was impressed with and happy to learn how to do over time as well. Well, it's, it's a, uh, well, you'll remember, right? When you were learning the night you could uh, sleep the night before the seminar and not have the book on your chest where you kept waking up and looking at it. Right. And it was that confidence in one, the technique, confidence in what you know, right? Uh, totally knowing any conversation you're going to have, Mike, you know this, you're going to screw up. You're going to make errors. You've met And many. it's just it's just getting past that and, and understanding that people do know that. You know, you're walking down the street and you trip. Well, some people freak out. Some people just get up and keep walking, right? I mean, it's who hasn't tripped? who hasn't run into a sign or, or done something stupid. So just get up and yeah, that's life today. Move on. And move on. I think the other thing I saw you do early on that really stuck with me was, I don't mean to say it as bluntly without context, but admit when you didn't know something or have the exact answer at the moment. So it was maybe the first or second time we were ever out together. I don't remember what the question was, but somebody asked you a question. It had more of like a legal bend to it and very casually like, great question. I'll find out. I'll call Dave Zolowski tonight and I'll have an answer. And just that calm confidence to essentially say, don't know, but I know a guy in front of a group of people that are looking at you to be the expert. I found to be a powerful moment to me for just relax, be yourself, be authentic. You'll actually earn more trust and more faith from your audience in doing that. And if I, I agree. And if I could now speak out of the other side of my mouth, there are other times that I know the answer and I say, I don't know, not, not to call somebody, but to put it to the class, right. Or put it to the person I'm speaking with to get them thinking, right. One of the goals as an instructor, as a coach is I, I want to create thinkers, I don't want them to sit there and listen to me the whole time because that's not going to do the job. I need them to think. And if they can think, we can dig to the issues of them learning it, right? That's ultimately what I want them to do is learn it. And the best way to do that sometimes is not to give them the answer, is to make them think of the answer and let and be comfortable. So I'll go back to that statement, to be comfortable enough with someone else showing their expertise in the room. Yeah. As long as they're not taking over the, the room, but, you know, just. But and you've got those people too, but just letting them share their experience as well for others. So it's not just one person in front of the group. I, another amazing point. And when we allow somebody else to think through it, really what we're teaching, like you're saying, is problem solving skills. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so much of what we had to learn in the interview room, so much of what we had to learn when we did get involved in investigations at different points in our career, and so much of what we had to learn teaching was problem solving. Mm -hmm. And it could be like the equipment doesn't work. 
It could be I'm at a hotel in San Jose. The seminar starts in five minutes and the 50 workbooks that are supposed to be here aren't here. And it's the hotel's fault. But I've got a room full of people that are expecting me to start. (laughs) Those problem solving lessons that we learn in front of a group, asking these questions and teaching people to develop their own problem solving skills are so important. I do want to share the clip nose version of maybe the single most important teaching lesson you ever taught me. And I know you remember this one. Once upon a time in a land a little bit closer to where I am right now than you, we were speaking at a conference together and we each had part of a presentation. Yes. And us being us, we didn't (laughs) practice each other's piece. It was you go and then I go. So there was no other, like, you weren't going to go until I said, Wayne, you're up. And I didn't bother looking at your slides and you didn't bother looking at mine. We trusted each other. But when I was on my last slide, you're up next. I have not seen one of your slides. I'm on my last slide. Somebody calls you out of the room and you just get it up and walk out. And here I am in front of, I mean, correct me, 200, 250 people, whatever it was. I literally, when I hit the forward button on the slide, I have no idea what's coming up next. I don't know if it's a picture. I don't know if it's words. I don't know what it ties into. I know nothing. And I'm watching you walk out of the room going, I'll figure this out. And you're dead. (laughs) By the time you came back, I was three slides into your presentation that I'd never seen before, handed it off to you and you got to finish it. So, in and retrospect, that was very nice, Mike. That was very nice because I actually went out to uh, to to use the washroom because I had too much water. I'm like, I better go now because I'm on stage next. Well, I wasn't going <laughs> to stitch you out to the audience. Yeah. Um, so even worse. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but even just be like, when we think about whether it's your your career as an investigator, your career as a leader, your career as a public speaker, whatever it is, those moments become anchor moments. Mm-hmm. Like if I can survive Wayne walking out on me in front of 250 people, then there's very few things that I can't survive because nobody in that room knew that happened. Right. So if we can survive that together, there's mm-hmm. nothing we can't survive. And those, in many ways, either intentionally or unintentionally, were lessons that I learned from you early on. And I appreciate that. Well, and it's a life lesson that I'm sure has been taught to me and taught to you. And it's the biggest takeaway I would say for anybody listening is it's okay. Yeah. You know, just get through it. They they don't know what your script is. They don't know what your thoughts are. Um, so just keep going. I tell it to people all the time. The people sitting in front of you have no idea what you're supposed to say next. Right. So wherever you go, it's like when I joke, when I'm on the road and someone takes me out to dinner and they're like, oh, I took a wrong turn. How would I know? Right. You didn't have to say that out loud. I'm along for the ride. I've never been in this city before. I've never gone to this restaurant before. I don't know that you took a wrong turn. I'm just hopeful we're going to get to the restaurant. So you're up in front of a room, you blank for a minute, just, Whatever comes natural to you next, fill in the blanks till it comes back to you because nobody else knows what you were going to say. Agreed. I agree. So you've mentioned coaching several times. Mm -hmm. And the first real conversation I believe you and I ever had was when you gave me a ride back to the airport in DFW. Yes. And here I was getting in your car like, oh, this is my chance to talk interrogation with Wayne Hoover. And we talked flag football (laughs) for the whole ride. But coaching and youth coaching is a passion, another passion that you and I share. I mean, you've mm-hmm. coached baseball at all levels. You've coached football. You've coached different sports as well. Um, people might be surprised to learn 
how or what percentage of your teaching techniques and even your interview and interrogation techniques are skills that you have learned or fine-tuned on a ball field with kids? You know, I think that is a uh, fair statement. You know, if you can get a, you know, your your son is six years old. If you can get a bunch of six-year-olds to do something, you can get most adults to do it. So learning that skill set, and I've coached from five years old into high school and, uh, you know, for 35 years, and it's it's been some of the most rewarding things to help me with my career, which I didn't realize. And getting on different boards and getting involved, it's, and I, I don't want to equate people we're talking to, to little kids. That's not what I mean. I just mean that there is what's the motivation behind them and getting them to do what you think is best for them. Uh, so it's it's not the what's best for me. It's what's best for the team or what's best for that individual. Uh, to me, that has been probably a good 80% of my whole job has, I can equate to coaching and, and helping people learn skills. I mean, that's what it's all about is learning skills. It, not even, I mean, you're right. When I say not even, I'm not taking away from that. Right. It's not just learning skills. It's learning the confidence, the belief system that these skills are attainable. Mm -hmm. And then being willing to fail and struggle and go through that emotional curve and, and play through it. I don't know about you, um, but even the, the coaches that I'm currently, like you were all volunteers, parents, boys on the team, we get together and we talk that, yeah, there's a couple of kids on the team that are a little bit older. They've been playing a little bit longer and they're clearly the best kids on the team. It's great to see them do well. It's mm -hmm. awesome to watch a six-year-old smoke a line drive over the pitcher's head into the outfield on the fly. Like That's pretty cool to see. But the rewarding ones are when a kid who hasn't gotten a hit in four games makes contact, hustles down to first base, turns around and looks at his mom behind the fence with the big smile. And mm -hmm. knowing that weeks, in, on some little level, we contributed to that kid and that family having that moment. And quite honestly, the next day when that kid goes to first grade, him feeling better about himself because last night he had the big hit or he made the big out or, you know, whatever it was being able to dedicate that kind of time and have that kind of impact to me. Mm -hmm. And I know to you too is pretty special. It is. And I, I, um, I've recently run into a father. Uh, I coached his son with my older son, so he's 30. So this would have been when he was 14. So 16 years ago, Right. And I coached uh, for a while in the summer leagues where it was it wasn't a travel team. It was kids that couldn't make a travel team. And it was a struggle. Baseball was a struggle for them, uh, but they loved the game. And same thing, taught a kid and he didn't have a hit, not three or four games, the whole season. And when I realized it just wasn't going to work for him, I started working on a new skill. So we worked on bunting. And sure enough, we get in the championship game and I call a suicide squeeze, a guy on third base, for those of you who don't know, he's on third base. He's going to be stealing home as this kid bunts and this kid hasn't touched the ball all year. And I talked to him and I said, you got this. We practiced it. It's easy. You just get your bat out early. Don't worry about him knowing. And he laid it down and we scored and we won the game. And that dad, not even a month ago, came up to me. He goes, you know, you changed the trajectory of my son's life. 
he thought he was a failure. You, he still talks about that from when he was 14, 16 years later. That meant a lot to me, right? And that's why I coach. That's why I teach is I love those comments, those, those thought processes. To, to think that you had a little piece of someone's life to make them feel better about themselves and, and to get better. Why would you want to do anything else? And you talk about teaching. I mean, yeah. those are, first of all, in the kid's life, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the supreme compliment. Like, mm-hmm. to some degree, that child has had a better, happier, more successful life because of a moment you gave him and a belief system he created in himself due to that moment. Mm-hmm. Now you think about it professionally. Mm-hmm. Those are the compliments that when you get back on the airplane to go home after missing your wife and kids for three days. Mm-hmm. All right, maybe to some degree, I owe this time back to my family, but now that person's life has been changed for the better, butterfly effect, ripple effect after that for that person and that family in in their lives. And that meaningful moment, and honestly, before people cry BS, even an interview and interrogation. Yes. You more than me for sure. How many times have we either been told directly or found out after the fact that after somebody had a conversation with us, mm-hmm. that was an opportunity for them to change the course that they were on. It happens a lot in unexpected places. <laughs> you know, I've had it happen in a bar in Cleveland. I've had it happen at the airport. I've had it happen numerous places where you're thinking you trained them and then you realize, nope, I interviewed them. Mm-hmm. And because we were authentic, because we developed a rapport, because we treated them with dignity and respect, they were able to change their life because they didn't feel judged. And, and then they want to share that with you, which means that that rapport, that reputation, not just a step of, of being having rapport, it's the reputation of having it. They feel comfortable enough to come up and tell you even their most embarrassing moment and telling you how that fixed their life moving forward. And that's, that's a heck of a feeling. And it is because we didn't judge them. We didn't right. embarrass them. Right. And it's, I don't know how to put into words the power of that approach. Mm-hmm. Like Wayne Hoover changing people's lives, who he interrogated because they realized that was a moment to change. Number one, I'm not saying you're a hero for that. And number two, I'm not saying, well, of course, you know, they got caught in a crime. So now they have to change their ways or they'll be a criminal forever. That's logical. No, absolutely. That couldn't be further from the truth. Right. How many times have you interviewed some? Well, generally, we only got called after people had been interrogated. <laughs> like, right. Thanks for messing this up for me. Could you have not called me three months ago? True. So, and this is if someone's been a repeat criminal, who knows how many times they've been an inter- interrogated? But by and large, before you to leave your office and go interrogate somebody, they've probably already been interrogated at least once. So in that scenario, they've already had the opportunity to experience that stereotypical, well, I guess I shouldn't be a criminal anymore. But the reason why they didn't tell the truth and the reason why they didn't come to that realization is because of how their interviewer treated them. Right. It's not like all of a sudden you have new evidence. It's not like all of a sudden the whole thing changed before you got there. It's the same situation, but worse for the interviewer by the time you get there. And these empathy building techniques are creating those moments. Agreed. And and two two things popped in my head as you were saying those things, right? Number one, you know, the 
you always get asked what what's the best advice you can give, either as a parent, as a teacher, as a coach, as an a, a interviewer. Um, and I tell everybody the same thing. It's three words. Work at it. Work at your relationships. Work at your finances. Work at your job. Work at your um, work at your interviewing skills. Work at your rapport building. Just work at it. If you just apply that to every topic in your life, you're going to get better if you continue to work at it. And then the second one is, and Steph said this in her interview with you. She said, you know, in her sales positions, she had no problem asking the question. You got to ask for the sale. I will tell you, I'm opposite. That's not who I am, and. I've always been, I've got a good friend, you and I both know, he told me when he retired, he goes, you never asked once for me to buy from you. And he goes, I think I spent $5 million with you. And I'm like, either I got something good or I don't. And you know my belief in it. And because I taught your team, this is how it went. And you saw that the results of that. And I I believe being that authentic and, and that passionate and having something you truly believe in that you can teach them how to replicate it. I still think there's something to be said for asking the question. I have to as an interviewer, but from a negotiation standpoint, I don't always have to do that. It's, uh, I heard you say it's a natural progression of the conversation, right? And I think that is a perfect way to put it. It's a natural progression that, well, that's the next step. It just makes sense. Let's go. Let's solve it. And it goes back to even Zalowski. I probably slot in between your comfort zone and Steph's comfort zone. There's times where I'm cool asking the question. I know it's got to be done. And then there's times where I'd rather somebody look at me like, well, yeah, that's obvious. Let's do it. Um, But even thinking back to what I would hear Zalowski say, so Dave Zalowski say, and he, you, if you listen to the show, you've heard him here as well. Um, that we don't want to ask the question until we believe somebody's ready to tell the truth. And when people hear that, they're like, oh, wait, so you just wait? Like you don't ask? They actually know. If you use the technique the way the technique is designed, they should be ready to tell the truth at the exact time you want to ask the question. Like we know what the mental roller coaster they're riding are and is, and we're staying one to one and a half steps ahead of that the whole time. So we know more often than not when they're there. And sometimes they're so resistant. We got to get this party started. So we're going to ask them anyway, because when they deny it gives us other routes that we can take. But I feel like that's a lot of where my thoughts on the natural progression come from. Like if I do a good job leading somebody through the mental gymnastics, I'm probably still going to have to ask, but, now it's just a natural progression. Well, yeah, that's the next step. We didn't just go off through all of that not to do this. No, I agree. I, it's it's moving them through that triangle, right? Where there there's there's uh, denial and there's their maybe anger and then there's sadness and there's negotiation and, and and getting them to that acceptance moment is what most conversations are about. And sometimes. If I may, real quick, just from a coaching standpoint, I had a kid that uh, he was a look good off the bus. All right. I mean, like a trial. So I'm like, who's that kid? All right. That's my four hitter. And uh, he had had a personal coach and it was this whole Chris Bryant uh, launch angle thing. And I'm like, that works great for Chris Bryant because he's a pro. He's in the professional major league baseball. He's, He's a pro. You're a kid. And uh, I had to have a conversation with him and say, listen, um, I'm more of a line drive guy. And I go, plus I coach freshmen. 
So yeah, you bomb that first one. And next time you get up, it's a pop out because they're they're playing deeper. There's there's no fence. So what's it, what are you going to do for me? And he fought me. And and all of a sudden, by the uh when I say fought me, mentally he fought me. And he's like, This is what my my coach says, my personal coach. And I did different things. I asked him at one point, I go, has your coach ever watched you in a game? Because I can pitch to you wherever you would like it when I'm doing batting practice. You like it low, I can throw it low. You like it high, I can throw it high. Pitchers don't do that in a game, right? They're going to put it where you like it most of the time, or they're going to try not to. So that doesn't work. Get your coach out here to watch you. And that didn't work. And then finally, when he was batting ninth, and his batting average was whatever it was, and his strikeout rates were all over. He goes, what do I need to do to get moved back up? He needed line drives. And once he finally realized that, that his way wasn't working, he finally gave in to try my way. And that's just that whole authenticity. It's working different angles. I'm telling you, that took probably 10 games. So you figure that's three weeks for him to get to that point. And it's just being the bulldog on my side. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep working them. And by the way, I could have been wrong. Maybe he had that skill set. He did. <laughs> I mean, he could have been, you know. But that's also allowing people to find their own path to resolution. Mm-hmm. In interrogation, we never told somebody how or why to confess. We just put the guardrails on the road, let them figure it out. And once they made up their mind, we accepted it. When mm-hmm. Steph in business development or us selling our programs, we're not telling people how and why they should buy it. We're having the conversation, helping them make up their own mind. And then we're executing on that decision. Coaching kids. I could sit here all day long with my son and adjust his hands and move his feet and change his knees. And I can do all this stuff, but my son's going to stand how he's comfortable standing. Right. That's just how it is. So if he misses the ball enough, or if he pops the ball straight up in the air enough and he gets frustrated enough, now he's ready to listen. So Mm -hmm. allowing people to define their own path to the solution that we've already seen takes a lot of patience, but is nearly always the more effective path. And if I could add skill. Yeah. It's skill on the conversationalist part, right? We're we're realizing, all right, they're getting there. Maybe not in my time frame. I think that goes back to the need to win, the need to be right. Like (laughs) we talked a little bit about that with interrogators. Like I don't need to win. I need that kid to hit 320 and stop striking out. <laughs> like that's that's what I need to happen. Right. You do a lot of community work too. Yeah, I do. How do these same principles apply to the volunteer work that you do? Well, um, I have to tell you, probably one of my most challenging moments was uh, I was put on an ad hoc committee to change some bylaws. And it's a board of 40 men, right? And the, you always have in that type of setting where you've got that many people, by the way, all, a lot of owners of their businesses and, and very successful attorneys, all sorts of stuff. And we had a couple of uh, individuals that would argue on everything. Right. And uh, one was an attorney. And when I got put in charge of the ad hoc committee from the chairperson at the time, they said, who do you need? And I go, I need this person, this person, and this person. And the one was the attorney. And why would you do that? And I go, because we're going to present it to the full board with the changes to vote on. Uh, If I get them to buy in while we're doing it, 
and let him present it, who cares whose idea it is? He's presenting it as his. He's not going to argue. In fact, what's he going to do? He's going to argue the other way when someone else argues. And, and that was probably uh, such a valuable lesson for me that it was in my mind, it was risky. I was like, this is going to be a pain in the butt. And it wasn't easy, uh, but it worked. And it really taught me a valuable lesson that if you've got somebody that's, uh, by the way, just go back to teaching, go back to coaching, right? If you've got somebody difficult in the class, you can bet first break. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> what's yeah. going on? What, what's causing this? And figuring it out and developing that rapport on an individual basis to overcome it. And I, I think I learned that from volunteering, uh, working through with so many different opinions and so many different directions. Uh, it truly was negotiation at that at that point. I think that's a great example. And why why not take the biggest obstacle and turn it into a supporter? Mm-hmm. Get that get all get all that arguing out of the way. Get them on board, and then let that person go do all the fighting for you. Exactly right. Strategically, it makes the most sense in the world. Uh, I'll keep an eye on the clock here. I want to be very respectful of your time. I know you've got another meeting coming up this afternoon. I can't thank you enough for being here. It's been too long since we've talked, too long since one of us stumbled into the other one's office with something probably random to talk about for 40 minutes. Um, But I do sincerely want to thank you for identifying me at the time that you did, believing me at the time that you did, investing me in me all the times that you did, probably tolerating me all the times that you did, probably sticking up for me all the times that you had to, especially early on. Um, but you know, if I was to rank all the people that have significantly impacted what I've done and where I've been, you got to be right up at the top of that list. So not only thank you for sharing all of your ideas, insights, and examples today, but thank you for all the contributions you made to me to help me get to where I am. I really am grateful for it. Well, and the feeling is mutual, Mike. I I've stuck up with, for you for everything except for one night in Phoenix. And uh, I'll just leave it at that. But thank you so much for for having me. And uh, I I wish you nothing but continued success. Always knew you'd be a success. And uh, I'm proud to be a small part of it. A big part of it, man. I appreciate it. Tell Steph I said hello. We'll talk again soon. Sounds good, brother. Take care, man. Wayne, thank you so much. I'm grateful for that conversation and all of your experiences and insights that you share. I truly appreciate it. Who would have thought that somebody can use interrogation techniques to influence a board decision by prioritizing their most difficult member in the negotiation? Who would have thought that lessons that we learn helping young children save face, build confidence, and learn new skills on a ball field are directly applicable to how we can teach professionals in the seminar environment and learn the truth in our interrogations? And we can't say it enough. We cannot reinforce how important it is to build rapport authentically, to be ourselves, to help people save face, to be who they need us to be in any stressful or vulnerable conversation in life, business, or investigations, to help people preserve their dignity. And for those of us that are in an investigative role, pursue the truth with moral, legal, and ethical means. Wayne, thank you for everything you've done for the industry. Thank you for all the time you've invested. Thank you for everything that you've given to me. And thank you so much for our conversation today, man. I really do appreciate it. I hope everybody got as much or more out of that conversation than I did.
Before we go, let's thank our sponsors one more time. Human Tell, please, if you're interested in learning more about how to accurately read people's changing emotions through their facial expressions and nonverbal behavior, head over to humantel.com and enter the code in Quasin25 for 25% off their best-in-class online training. Again, I've done it all myself. I highly recommend it. Also, head over to Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com for their growing catalog of emotional intelligence-related resources, reading, video, audio, training, everything there, Emotional Intelligence Magazine. And of course, especially if you just listen to this conversation with Wayne and I, if you are an investigator, if you run an investigations team, if you're interested in investigations, please head over to the International Association of Interviewers at CertifiedInterviewer.com. Explore what membership in that organization might mean for yourself or your investigations team, the training programs that are available, the resources that are available, the networking that's available, and of course, that certified forensic interviewer designation. Are you and your team ready to level yourself up to that level of knowledge and practical ability? Everything you need to know at certifiedinterviewer.com. Thank you all for taking the time to continue to watch or listen to these conversations. I really am grateful for it. Please do all the things the algorithms ask us to do. Please subscribe. Please share. Please like. Please leave your comments. Please share your feedback with me. I would love to hear what do you like and you'd like to hear more of. What don't you like and you'd like to hear less of. What can we do differently? Please share your thoughts. We sincerely welcome all of them. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you guys all being here. Please stay safe, take care of each other, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.